We are missionaries in Peru. Um, we want to invite anyone that, that would like to come and visit. We have visitors from time to time and missions teams that come and visit. And um, if you want to lose weight, uh, it's, a, it's a good trip to actually, since we've been back in the States, we've been here for about three and a half months now, um, uh, sharing what the Lord's doing in, in Peru. And I've gained about 20 pounds since we've been here. So um, can't wait to get back to Peru and lose weight quickly again. So. If you want to do a missions trip and a weight loss trip at the same time, you can eat maggots and wild boar brains and drink yucca spit juice, and uh, uh, you'll also have a great time. So, um, Anyway, this evening, I, I want to try not to, to go too long and just to continue on with the idea of revival. And uh, when they were talking to me about revival, I was just I was thinking a lot about the book of Nehemiah, and as I was praying, I felt like that uh, should share from the book of Nehemiah. I could go through probably the first 10 chapters here, but that would take a long time, and it's getting late, and don't want anyone to go to sleep, so um, just turn with me to the book of Nehemiah if you have your Bible, Nehemiah. As you're turning there, um, and before I start reading, I was just thinking in in 1 Samuel 17, um, that's the story of David and Goliath, and it's really interesting to me how Goliath, it says, he comes out 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, evening and morning, morning and evening, and he cries out to the Israelite army, give me a man, give me a man, give me a man. And the, there wasn't any men for 40 days, evening and morning, no men. I mean, there were men, there were a lot of soldiers there. No one stood up for more than a month. No one comes forward and says, huh, I'm, I'm a man. Uh, you're bigger than me, but I'm willing to fight in the Lord's battles. And uh, finally, David, a young man, a youth, comes forward and says, you can't blaspheme my God. I'm going to be willing to stand up and claim him who claimed me. I'm going to fight in his battles and trusting in the Lord. And I just think of, of the same, that same, those words that Goliath said, give me a man, give me a man, give me a man. It's the same question today. Where are the men? Where are the men? I mean, just a few good men. The Lord, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need anyone, but he does use men, men and women that are willing to be used. And I mean, where, where are the men? That question can just be echoed down through history. Where are the men? And uh, this is a story, Nehemiah, about a man. God raised up one man who motivated other men to rebuild the broken down walls. And that is exactly what we've what we see today. I mean, the walls are broken down. You look at Christianity, American Christianity, in a lot of cases, there's some bright places, and I don't want to just uh, um, discourage everyone with bad news. I mean, there's bright places, but at the same time, I mean, the walls are broken down. The walls of ministry, and just the walls of society, there's so much to be done. Where are the men and women that are willing to stand up and say, I want to put my hands to the work. Start to rebuild the walls. I want to start reading Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. 
right down to the end of the chapter. I'm reading the ESV. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who, are deli- who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word and to contemplate revival. Lord, I pray that you would raise up young men and young women who are willing to put their hands to the work. God, we pray that there would be no wasted lives in this room. Lord, I pray that you would put into our hearts a sense of urgency, that you'd use us to extend your kingdom, knowing that one day Christ will rule physically on this earth literal and a political kingdom, but at the same time you reign from heaven and in the hearts of your believers. I pray, Lord, that you might use us as useful instruments in your hands to extend that kingdom. Thank you for the tremendous opportunity that you've given us to be your ambassadors. pray that you'd encourage us with these words from Nehemiah as we think about this story. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing that I want to point out here is Nehemiah. This guy, he's the cupbearer to the king. That's the last line of the chapter. He's got a good job. In Spanish, we say, un trabajo pituco. Pituco is kind of like a, um, a rich, rich, I don't know how to translate that. Can't really translate it. 
uh, a comfortable job, uh, a posh job. Uh, the one problem here is his job is to make sure poison doesn't get into Artaxerxes' cup. And he's got to test that cup of wine first. If he falls over dead, then Artaxerxes knows he shouldn't drink it. That's his job. He, he's probably testing the food also. But I mean, he, it, it, he's a confidant to the king. The king really, really trusts this guy. He's the last line that, that anyone that could possibly get to the king, they've got to get through Nehemiah. But at the same time, it's, it's a great job because, I mean, he's living in the palace. He's wearing comfortable clothes. Uh, he, he's probably has the same service that the king has to him. The guy has a great job as long as no poison comes through the cup. But, I mean, this is a good job. And you look at in the story and later on in chapter 2, he leaves everything to go and rebuild the broken down walls. And the first thing you see about this guy, it, it says in the month of Chislev, that's around December uh, in the Hebrew calendar, and in the month of Chislev, his brother and some of the others come, and he asks them about, how's Jerusalem, the city of our fathers? How's it, how's it doing? Now, Israel was taken into captivity in 722, that's the northern kingdom, and then Judah was taken into captivity in around 580 or so into Babylon. Now, Nehemiah is part of Judah, and he gets ready, and what he wants to do is take part of the remnant of Judah back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. Now, Ezra's already gone back. Ezra's already rebuilt the temple. And now in this, actually, this is the third wave. Nehemiah is going to bring these other people back to build the walls. But the first thing, he asks his brother, what's the situation? What are the walls like? And his brother says, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And I've already said, you can relate this to the situation in which we see the world today. And really, you look at, at Nehemiah after this, it says he sits down, he weeps for days, he fasts, he prays, he's mourning. It, you really can tell a lot about a person by what makes them sad or by what makes them happy. Look at what makes this guy sad. I mean, some guys get really depressed when the L.A. Lakers lose a game. If that just moves you... You need to get your priorities straight. Uh, I mean, Nehemiah here, he's got his priorities straight. He gets distressed. He's mourning, weeping, fasting as he looks at society around, as he looks at the condition of the walls. We should look at society around. Look at the condition of the church. I mean, look at the world in which we live. Does it just drag you down to your knees? Does it force you to just come before God in mourning and weeping and praying, even fasting. Look at how Nehemiah confronts the situation. The first thing, he's distressed over the condition in which he sees the walls of Jerusalem. Um, one time we had Adventists come to our door. They were doing uh, some personal evangelism. They came to the door. I opened up the door. The first thing that they said, the first thing that they said, I opened up the door, they didn't even say their names or anything like that. The first thing they said is, do you eat meat? I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, is that the best question that your religion can formulate? 
Do you eat meat? I mean, is that as good as your religion gets? Is that what it's all about? I was just, when they came to my door, I was in the midst of dealing with this situation where I had just arrived in this village, and uh, these drunk guys had knocked in the door to this house, and they uh, smashed a beer bottle over this guy's head as he was sleeping in his bed, and then slit his throat with the glass uh, that was left of the glass, the glass bottle. And then uh, uh, the people afterwards in the village had captured the drunks, and they had them uh, chained up in the main square, and I arrived. Uh, just as they were about to execute them, uh, sh- they had shotguns that they were, they were getting ready to shoot them with. And, and I arrived in the village and they said, oh, el hermano Miqueas is going to take care of the problem. I mean, dealing with major problems. I took a class called Issues and Missions. They didn't teach us how to deal with those kind of issues. But I, I, I mean, big problems, like gangs, drug abuse, alcoholism, rape, all of these villages that, that I go visit, I have about 30 villages in the, in the jungle that I visit kind of in a circuit. I mean, major problems in every one of them. The only things to do for entertainment is basically get drunk, fornicate, and fight. And I come into the village and everyone knows me in a lot of places. I'm the only white guy that they've ever seen. And I get up on a table preaching like a madman. And, and I mean, the whole village gathers around to listen. And then afterwards, people coming with major problems asking for advice. How do I deal with this situation? People coming with major things. And I mean, all of these things dealing with, and people need Christ. People need to repent, turn from their sins, place their faith in Christ. He's the only hope for this world. And then this this religious group comes and they ask me, do you eat meat? I mean... Maybe we could apply that kind of frivolous question to some of the doctrines that we really want to hold on to in our church. Are they really that important? I mean, what are we all about? And, and, and thinking about revival, I, I really, I almost switched my message sitting there in the back. I was thinking, I really, I need to preach Genesis 2 because you see man as he was originally created. And I really think that in order to see real revival, if we want to change society, we've got to change first the church. If we want to change the church, we've got to change the family unit. If we want to change the family unit, we've got to change the man. Where are the men? And you see in Genesis chapter 2, you see the man as he was originally created. It's awesome, pastors. That's going to have to be a different sermon. I decided to stay with Nehemiah because here's a man. Here's a man who stands up and he leaves everything that he has and then he directs other men, inspires them to put their hands to the work and to begin to rebuild what has fallen down. There are young men, young women in this room, and I mean young men and young men, Young women are, are, are the best group to preach to. The old guys, they're kind of stuck in, stuck in their ways. And No, I don't want to offend. I've kind of had the gift of offending people. I'm sorry if you're offended. But I mean, young people, tremendous opportunity. All of your life set before you. Be a Nehemiah. Be a Nehemiah. Let, let me read this quote right here by C.H. Spurgeon. He said, if sinners will be damned, 
At least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We ought to be all about trying to save people that are going to hell. I mean, if they're going to go to hell, make them leap to hell over our bodies. Uh, We ought to be grabbing them around their knees, imploring them to stay, preaching the gospel. Let no one go to hell unwarned or unprayed for. That's building the walls. we got to be building the walls. I mean, what has happened? Why... Where are the wall builders? Where are the young men and women that are willing to stand up and begin rebuilding the broken down walls? Nehemiah, I mean the first step here I think starts with a distressed heart over the situation. You could stand back and look at the situation of the church and look at the situation in society and just say, God, why doesn't somebody do something? But then maybe God says to you, why don't you do something? I mean, Nehemiah, it seems like he starts praying then in verses 5 to, to 11, basically the rest of the chapter, and he's, and he's praying and basically kind of follows an outline of prayers that you see in many places in the Bible. Adoration, confession, petition. First he worships, and then he confesses the sins of, of the Jewish nation, but he includes himself. And he confesses his sin, and then he brings his petition and says, God... Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about, I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to present an idea. I'm going to ask him to send me. He stands up in the next chapter, he's going to ask the king to send him. But I mean, he's praying God. Basically, and you see as he's praying, his heart begins to change. Why doesn't someone else do something to... Here I am, send me. Um, It is interesting, this book of Nehemiah, if you read it from beginning to the end, I mean, it is just saturated in prayer. Just, I mean, so this book starts with prayer. If you read this prayer, and just in verse, in, in chapter four, you see the word prayer comes up one, two, three, four, five times. If you keep on going in chapter two, in chapter three, chapter four, and every time he comes into, he, he's got all kinds of uh, criticism that he faces as he begins to build the wall. He's got all kinds of difficulties that he faces. Every single difficulty that he faces, he prays. He prays. He prays. I think that's another major key. Do we pray? Do you pray? Do we pray as families? Do you pray as an individual? Do you pray as a family? Do you pray as a church? Do you have prayer meetings still in your assembly? Let let me read a a few quotes about prayer. William Carey, Godfather, or the father of modern missions. Uh, they call him a missionary to, to India. He said this, and before he was a missionary, he was a shoe cobbler. He said, I fix shoes to make money, but my real business is prayer. Leonard Ravenhill said this, a sinning man stops praying and a praying man stops sinning. The Queen of Scots at the time of uh, John Knox, John Knox was preaching uh, against the Queen of Scots, who was uh, 
hardcore Catholic and uh, really taught a gospel that had nothing to do with uh, uh, salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And the Queen of Scots said this, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of Europe. I love that statement. I mean, all of the armies of Europe, the lady didn't fear them at all. She had her armies, but the prayers of one man. Do you pray? Nehemiah, he prayed. This this man, as you read through the book, he was a man of prayer, and God used him to be key in rebuilding the walls that were broken down. Uh, I heard an illustration. I don't know if it's true. It's probably not true. But I like to think it's true. Small town in Texas. Maybe it was your town. Love it? Or, yeah. Um, small town in Texas, they say, had five churches in, in a small town. Uh, no strip bars at all. Uh, strip bar owner says he sees this town. He thinks it's strategic. He thinks he could make a lot of money there. He puts a strip bar in there. And so the churches, the pastors, all get together and they start praying that the Lord would eliminate the strip bar. And so they're praying, getting together, praying fervently against this, uh, that the Lord would just eliminate the strip bar and everything. And and then about two weeks later, uh, a thunderstorm comes, a lightning bolt falls, catches the the strip bar on fire, it burns down to the ground. And so the strip bar owner takes the pastors to court. They go to court and the, the judge there, after he hears their, their cases, I mean, the, the, the owner of the, the bar says, the pastors here were praying, God answered their prayer, sent this lightning bolt, burned it down, the pastors have to, pr- the pastors have to pay for this, it is their fault. And then the pastors, you know, they present their case, <laughs> judge, this isn't fair, I mean, yeah, we were praying, but I mean, this is totally, how can you blame us, it, or like, it, God didn't do this, I mean, just by chance a thunderstorm comes and a lightning bolt falls. I mean, this is ridiculous. And so the judge says, uh, one thing is, is really obvious here. While the owner of the strip bar believes in the power of prayer, the pastors don't. Do you believe in the power of prayer? I mean, that's, that's where revival has to start. Prayer. Do we pray anymore? And I'm just preaching to myself. I need to pray. I am such a hypocrite. I need to pray a lot more. We need to be all about prayer. If we are even going to talk about revival, we need to begin praying. And then we need to see men start to stand up. Where are the men? Give me a man. Give me a man. Give me a man. I mean, Goliath crying out. Can you hear that? 40 days and 40 nights crying out. And there's just no men. Finally, here we've got a story about Nehemiah, a man. And he's a man of prayer. And then that last little line once again, I already mentioned it, but he just says in that last line of chapter 1, now I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Um, again, a posh, nice job, good clothes, maybe the best food, best wines, He's living in the palace with the king, and then he just, and it takes him about four months. In chapter two, it says it starts out in the month of Nisan. That's that's April. It corresponds to our April. So Chislev was in chapter one, verse one. That's December. And then chapter two, verse one, Nisan. So December to April, if you count December itself and April, December, January, February, March, April. Longest 
amount of time there, possibly five months. Five months this guy is praying He's thinking about the situation of the broken down walls. He's mourning. He's spending time in fasting. And he's coming before the Lord with this. I mean, he has time to think about what he's going to do here. Five months thinking about what he's going to do. I'm sure those were, those were five hard months. He's wrestling with the idea, I have the best job ever. <laughs> do I really want to leave this job to go identify myself with exiled people? with people that were slaves? Do I really want to do this? I mean, wrestling with the idea. I was an electrician before went to the mission field in the year 2000, uh, about 14 years ago. And I remember really wrestling with sitting on the back deck of our house. We had a nice house, uh, a couple of cars. I was in charge of jobs, had my license, had people working for me. And just really thinking, do you really want to do this? I mean, you're going to leave everything and go waste your life in Peru? And I just remember really wrestling. And I, the biggest thing was retirement. What are you going to do about retirement? Well, where's the money going to come from? And just, I remember thinking, I do not want to be on my deathbed at 85 years old or however far I make it and just laying in my bed thinking, I've wasted it. I just wired a whole bunch of buildings or houses that are all going to burn up one day. And I mean, the majority of Christians are called to, to full-time secular work. And that is good and it is honorable and it would have been just great if I had continued in that secular work and at the same time been as involved as possible in ministry. But for me, the Lord, and for some, the Lord opens up doors to be involved in full-time work. And the Lord opened up that door in our case and just went through it with trembling and thinking about, what am I doing? I've got a good job here. My dad is a retired electrician and actually he, I don't know how it worked out, but he has like this retirement for $8,000 a month. And I remember thinking about that, I'm going to give this up. And Nehemiah, he leaves this whole thing to go and be a wall builder. Amos, in the book of Amos, I love this guy, Amos, I think it's chapter 7, verse 14, it starts, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. I love that, because Amos just says, I'm just a farmer, I'm a grower of sycamore figs, I follow some sheep around out there, I'm not a prophet. Or, or a pastor, or a preacher. I'm, I'm just an electrician. But the Lord takes you from that position in which you've, you're serving faithfully and opens up the door to go and do something else and to preach His Word full time. Go through that door. Go be a wall builder. Serve the Lord where you're at, wherever the Lord's put you, but at the same time, rebuilding the walls that have broken down. <clears throat> chapter 2, I just want to read up to verse 6. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is not but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. 
Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed. There again he prays. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I'm going to keep going. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that I may go, that I may, they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and let Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I love this. God uses a pagan king to provide for one of his sons, to provide for one of his representatives, one of his workers. God moves this pagan king Artaxerxes. There's no reason to believe that this guy's a believer. But he goes, he presents his case to the king. And he's got to be kind of nervous. I mean, the king could possibly take his head. You probably, he, I mean, he's got a good job, but at the same time, he's a slave. And he's coming and he's asking. This is a big petition, big request. And he's going to walk out of there with the blessing of the king. Why? Because the good hand of his God was upon him. That encourages me so much to be willing to go out and take risks, knowing that if God is for you, who can be against you? If God's good hand is on you, go for it. Risk is right. John Piper writes a book, a little booklet called that Risk is Right. And I love that. And, and it is kind of shocking to come from the jungles of Peru and come to the States. And we've been here now for about three months or so. And the Lord's opened up opportunities to share His Word in different places. But it has been shocking to see in the United States how, I mean, risk, you don't take risks unless uh, you could make a lot of money and it's uh, on, on the, uh, in stocks and bonds or something like that. Then you might take a risk, but... Uh, uh, I mean, OSHA and, and all the requirements. I mean, you got, uh, what's the word? Sometimes Spanish comes to my mind. Um, oh, no. Toaster. No, I know. But insurance. Okay, oh, I'm sorry. You can insure your toaster in the United States. I, I mean, you can insure anything and everything. And uh, I mean, it, it is amazing because we don't want to take risks. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's risky. Your to toaster might burn up and uh, if you don't have it insured, then. Uh, but it is amazing. It's shocking how we can insure everything. And everything is just to make our life more safe. Uh, where's the risk? And Nehemiah here taking this huge risk. Why? I mean, you see this guy. He trusts in the Lord. The good hand of God was upon him. And look at how God blesses him. God moves this pagan king 
to give him, there ends up being an army that goes along with him. It says in verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letter. Now the king has sent with me officers of army and horsemen. And, and there's letters. He's got lumber to go and build from Asaph. The, the, uh, and, and then all these letters with the king's signet ring on it. And then after that, he's got officers, horsemen, a small little army with him. And he I mean, look at how the Lord is blessed. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, said this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. That is, that is true. It, I've seen that. In a, I, I could just share story after story. I'll, I'll share one. Uh, we were kind of praying for a boat, but almost too afraid to pray one of those kind of things that's like so impossible shouldn't even pray for, kind of praying timidly for the, a boat. Uh, a guy comes and visits us, just calls up. He says, hey, I'm in Lima. I want to come and visit you. I've got a couple guys with me. I want to come visit and see the work there. He came and he saw the work in the villages, and he was so excited about it. He said, well, it looks like you guys could use a boat. And I said, well, there's boats. Actually, there's like taxi boats, and we can get the work done without a boat. and We don't really need one. It, it would help. And he said, well, just why don't you look into what it would cost to build a boat? Like, and don't get something, you know, used and old like most missionaries do. He said, go and look at what it would cost to build a brand new boat, new nice motor, roof on it and everything like that. And you can uh, get around easier. And so I looked into it. It's going to be $14,000 about. So I wrote him an email back. This is after they left and said, oh, it's going to be $14,000. This is way too much money. It's, it's impossible. Thanks, thanks for thinking of us. He wrote back the next day saying, okay. The uh, money's in your account. Go and build a boat and send some pictures. Use it for the Lord. I mean, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And you see that in Nehemiah right here. He's about to put his hands to the work, God's work, rebuilding the walls that have fallen down, and then God provides through a pagan king. Absolutely amazing. He's got a whole army behind him. He's got letters from the king. He's got materials, everything that he needs. And then in chapter 2, after that, the rest of chapter 2, he goes up to the Jews. He goes to the Jews in the land in Jerusalem. He shows them, look at the letters I've got. Look at the little army I've got with us to protect us. Look at all the materials. And the Jews look around. They just, they say, manos a la obra in Spanish. It sounds so much better in Spanish. In English, I don't know, maybe it sounds okay. Hands to the work. Hands to the work. It doesn't have that exact, it says in this version, let us rise up and build in verse 18. But they look around, they see God's good hand is on this guy. God's good hand is on us. We can do this. And they start to put their hands to the work. The same thing, I mean, you can apply this book of Nehemiah so well to our present situation. The walls are broken down. Look all around you. In society, in our church, in our assemblies, in the family. The walls need to be rebuilt. And it's got to start with the men. It's got to start with the men. Men of God that begin to pray. That are distressed over the situation. And then trusting the Lord for His provision. And then starting to put your hands to the work and others around see it. And they get inspired and start doing it also. I'm really excited about what I think that the Lord is going to begin to do in the younger generation. 
I just, I want to in some way try to be a part of it and inspire and encourage and just say, manos a la obra, hands to the work. Where are the young men and women that are willing to do that? Revival. And you look at the end, I could, I just want to keep on preaching and I should be done and there's, oh man, I should have finished like five minutes ago and I thought I was going to go short. I am so sorry. Uh, as you, as you continue on, we're just going to skip over to chapters 8 and 9. I won't even... In chapters 8 and 9, after, there's this revival that's beginning, but in chapters 8 and 9, they stand in the courtyard and they read the Bible from early morning, or the law, they read their Bible from early morning to midday. Early morning, maybe 6 o'clock, midday, noon, 6 hours, standing there reading the book. After that, they spend 6 hours repenting, confessing their sins. I mean, they're weeping and mourning over their sin. These are the things that you see in revival as you look at different stories of revival throughout the Bible. Uh, Men that begin to stand up. The men. And then you see prayer. And you see repentance. And you see a returning to the book. These are keys to revival. We're not going to see revival unless we start with those things. And I think really it starts with this. Where are the men? Give me a man. Give me a man. Give me a man. Goliath. Can you imagine him shouting that day after day after day? And there wasn't a single man that stood up till finally a young man, a youth, went out and God's hand was upon him. I want to read this quote real quick. This is by John Ritchie. No happier, no nobler work exists on earth in which the energies of youth and the best and brightest years of life may be occupied for God than in going forth with the gospel message, heaven's last and costliest gift to men, seeking to win them to the Savior, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. No happier, no nobler work exists in the whole universe than in trying to go about rebuilding the walls, saving those who are chained in darkness, going about rescuing people from the power of of Satan and bringing them over into the power of God. There is no nobler, no happier work than that. Give me a man. Give me a man. Give me a man. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would raise up men, men of prayer, men of repentance, men of the book, that decide first to lead their families, and then when the family is in order, lead the church, when the church is in order, able to lead society. Oh God, the walls are broken down all around us. Such a great need for wall builders. God, we pray for genuine and biblical revival. Realizing that it has to start with the men. Father, we just pray that you might be glorified you might see fit to use some of us, 
maybe all. Oh God, we just pray that our lives would not be wasted. Thank you for each young person in this room this morning. No, this evening. Thank you for what you're going to do with them and how you're going to use them. Help us to be faithful to you. No happier, no nobler work exists in the universe than to be about soul winning, than to be about your work, rebuilding the walls. As Goliath cried out, give me a man, I pray that there would be more and more men standing up, willing to claim him who claimed them. Preachers of righteousness, men of integrity, men of prayer, men that begin with repentance, men of the word. We put our lives into your hands, asking that you might use us and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.